0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
1: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And gather ye round, because I am about to tell a tale of space. Ah, well, let's do it. Of space and discovery. So on October 19th of this year, of 2017... A telescope on a mountain in Hawaii caught sight of something very strange passing through the sky. The telescope was the Pan Starrs one which stands for Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System. And it's part of the High Altitude Observatory on Haleakala, a volcano on the island of Maui. Robert, have you been to Hawaii? I, I've never been.
0: Uh, yes, I, I have been once in the past and actually looking to go back uh, this year. Can you, did you climb a volcano? I went into a volcano, sort—I mean, sort uh-huh. of—I went to Volcano National Park on the Big Island. I which burned is alive, <laughs> <laughs> and was reborn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. So, so picture
1: yourself up on one of these—you uh, know gravelly, uh big craters, the Big Shield volcano. And uh, so, the Pan Stars program is a system of telescopes, cameras, computers that are designed to monitor the sky continuously for signs of variable objects. Now, uh, there might be new discoveries of near-Earth asteroids or comets, uh, or there might be like small, minor moons of big planets like Jupiter or Saturn that they discover, or uh, they might be looking at other features of the sky that move or change over time. And on October 19th, pan one caught a glimpse of something that was indeed moving incredibly fast – Uh, Immediately, they enlisted the help of other observatories like ESO's Very Large Telescope in Chile, and at first, what the scientists thought they saw was a comet. Now, to remind you on basic solar system geology, an asteroid is a small object made of primarily rock and metal, and a comet is a small object made primarily of dust and ice, and asteroids were generally formed closer to the sun, where volatile compounds like H2O would melt or evaporate, and comets were generally formed farther away from the sun, where water would freeze. So they have this new object, they think it's probably a comet, and because they thought it was a comet, it got the designation C slash 2017U1, C for comet. Uh, so the scientists who discovered it enlisted the help of other uh, of other telescopes and other scientists and analysis revealed the path of the object. And it was a truly unique one. Pretty much everything in our solar system orbits on a relatively flat plane. And that's because most of the stuff in the solar system was formed out of the same original stellar accretion disk four and a half to five billion years ago. If you make a model of the movement of objects in the solar system. The angle of their orbital tilt with respect to the reference plane of Earth's orbit uh, is known as their orbital inclination. Now, most planets are within just a few degrees of us. All the planets are relatively flat, except Pluto. Pluto is a good bit more tilted than the others with an inclination of a little over 17 degrees, so it's sort of tipped like a hat. But the inclination of this new object, discovered in October, is off the charts. It is 123 degrees, according to the the JPL uh, data on it. That means if you were to look at a model of the solar system lying flat on a table with all the orbits, you know, they're they're flat down on the surface. This thing would be approaching the system from above, not Mm -hmm. quite straight down, but close to it sort of dive-bombing right through the middle of our galactic neighborhood. Now, you might normally see that kind of orbital inclination in long-period comets originating in the Oort cloud, but not in planets or asteroids whose orbits are generally pretty flat. So here's the thing to wonder. You're, you're imagining this thing dive bombing down into the solar system. Mm-hmm. Where did it cross the plane, right? Was it somewhere out near Jupiter? Nope. It was booking right past the sun. This object pierced inside the orbit of Mercury, the planet closest to the sun, passing within 25 percent of the distance between the sun and the Earth. So it was less than a quarter of one astronomical unit. And, of course, when you pass that close to the sun, the sun's massive gravity well really takes a bite out of your trajectory. And so because they knew that this had happened, the scientists were able to construct a model of the object's path. Now, if you look at some of these maps of what the object's path looked like, uh, zoomed into the scale of the inner solar system, it looks sort of like the object barrels past the sun and then begins to bend in its trajectory like a bow, but if you zoom way out to a map the scale of the orbit of Neptune, say, the trajectory suddenly looks instead like a giant letter V. It's straight down to the sun, sharp turn, then straight back out of the solar system. As if it's slingshotted off of the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you might see other comets with like largely eccentric orbits. You know, a comet has an eccentric orbit when it's not very circular, when it's like this crazy oval shape that comes really close to the sun and then goes way far back out into space. Um, but you don't usually see this kind of shape. So, so once you know how close it recently passed to the sun, you should know something else about it. If it were a comet, you'd expect to see what?
0: activity you would expect to see it acting like a comet the tail of the comet for instance
1: exactly yeah so a comet is made of volatile stuff it's made of gas and dust and water um, and it, so it's frozen into this dirty snowball this chunk of ice and when a comet gets close to the sun it starts to warm up and thaw out and for a comet of course warming up and thaw out entails the release of gas and dust uh, the coma you know the cloud this haze of dust and gas that surrounds the comet's nucleus and then as as you mentioned, the tails, actually two types of tails can show up. The you know the dust tail dragging behind the comet and the gas or the ion tail being blown away from the mm-hmm. sun by the solar wind. So we've got this weird trajectory on this crazy comet, and they look for the cometary activity. They look for the tail, they look for the coma, the gas, the dust. Nothing. Astronomers didn't see any of it. They found that it was pretty much completely inert, with no dust or anything around it. So Whatever it was, it was not made of ice and dust, and so it wasn't a comet. So instead, they decided to reclassify it. This, I think, was about a week after the discovery or so, so this would still be like uh, late October, probably. And they reclassified it as an asteroid A-2017U1. Now, earlier we mentioned this thing was moving really fast. How fast is that? Well, at its fastest, this would be when it was slingshotting right around the sun at its perihelion uh, on September 9th of this year. So they were able to sort of like take what they knew about it and chart the back course it had come from. They didn't see it at this point, but they knew what it had done by modeling it. At this point, it was going 196,000 miles per hour or 87.3 kilometers per second. That's pretty fast. Yeah, that is pretty fast. And looking at this speed and at the angle of its trajectory compared to other objects like long period comets, you start to notice something different. Most objects that pass near the sun bend around the sun in this elliptical path, indicating that they might go way back out into deep space And they might have this truly great orbital eccentricity, but you give them long enough and they'll be back to pass around the sun again. They're locked in orbit. Right. This new object, no dice, no orbit. It came from deep space bent around the gravity well of our sun and then left for deep space again and it won't be coming back
0: what i'm reminded of are these uh, videos that you see of streakers taking to a major sporting event you know where (laughs) they they just make a beeline onto the the field and then they're almost immediately chased off the field or tackled well in this case the streaker uh, was not tackled uh, but uh, got in, did this, uh put on their phenomenal show and uh, made a break for it.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. It's a space streaker. Yeah. Now, when you have an orbital path like this, or I guess it's not an orbital path, normally an orbital path, uh you'd have some kind of elliptical pattern. But this is what's known as a hyperbolic trajectory. It forms a hyperbola. So it's not going to loop back around. Mm-hmm. It just bends around and then goes off on its own way. So scientists have realized that that makes this object totally unique in the history of astronomy. This is the first definite confirmed sighting of an interstellar object in our solar system. It's from somewhere else. And thus, instead of being A-2017U1, and we'll get to a better name in a minute, mm-hmm. it became 1I-2017U1, I for interstellar. This object ripping through our solar system came from deep interstellar space. And before that, it almost definitely came from another star. Ooh. And we've never seen anything like this before.
0: Now, of course, the important caveat here is is we have never seen it. Uh, right. And that of course, we have to take into account the, the very small portion of time during which humans have been observing the cosmos with this degree of detail. E- exactly right.
1: And – there might be other objects like this that have passed before us. Even when we've had telescopes, we just didn't catch them mm-hmm. because this thing is very small and very far away and moving very fast. And the the direction that it's moving very fast in is currently a retreat from Earth. So it came kind of close to us and now it's going. And in within some short amount of time, our telescopes won't be able to see it anymore.
0: The, the, I think one of the amazing things about this story is that it's exciting on the astronomer astronomer level like mm-hmm. like astronomers and scientists are excited about this uh uh this ongoing study and uh, uh Outside commentators, the uh, science media, and beyond are also excited about it, uh, but all for good reason. Like, yeah. you, like it's not some sort of like geeky level of astronomy excitement that one would need to be just really uh, in depth in the field to get. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that the the journalists have to blow out of proportion in order to <laughs> uh, to to make uh, extremely fascinating.
1: Yeah. And it gets weirder. Mm -hmm. It's going to get weirder. I think we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can discuss in what ways it gets weirder. All right, we're back. So, first, the good news. We don't have to keep calling it The Object, though we'll probably use that a little bit. And we definitely don't have to keep calling it 1i-2017u1. It has a regular name now, as sort of regular, yes.
0: Yes, it is called Oumuamua. Oumuamua. Which has a nice ring to it, and it feels comforting somehow. It's not frightening. Well, tell me about the name, Robert. All right. So Oumuamua is Hawaiian for something that is a, quote, scout or messenger sent from the distant past to reach out to us.
1: Yeah, I've seen it translated occasionally as first messenger. Yeah.
0: So this name was chosen um, in uh, consultation with Hawaiian language expert uh, Kaiu Kimura and Larry Kimura. Uh, And in this uh, uh, word O means reach out for, and uh, mu'a with the uh, the second mu'a placing emphasis means first in advance of. So it's like first, first reacher outer. Yeah. Now the the Pan Stars Discovery team chose the name, but they reportedly referred to it at first as Rama uh, for, uh in, in a reference to the 1973 Arthur C. Clarke science fiction novel *Rendezvous with Rama*, uh-huh. which uh, I I have still yet to read. I think I have a, a pa- paperback copy of it, but it's a it's a major science fiction classic. Uh, one they've been trying to make a movie out of for years. I think uh, um, Morgan Freeman, I believe, uh, was attached to it. Uh, but it's set in the uh 2130s and concerns a 50-kilometer or 31-mile cylindrical alien starship that enters Earth's solar system. And the fictional ship was in turn named for the Hindu god Rama, a major deity and central character in the Hindu epic, the, the Ramayana. So already you can see what type of excitement was attached to this by the scientists
1: Yeah, well I mean the, that's kind of ominous so they're they're naming it after a spaceship surely that doesn't mean they actually thought it was a spaceship
0: Well that's that's the interesting thing because when you start looking at some of the characteristics of this object mm-hmm. um You can't help but begin to make those connections like you can try and fight it off. Mm -hmm. You can you can imagine a scientist saying, no, no, don't think about it as a spaceship. Don't don't get your hopes up. Don't get don't get all riled up about this possibly being a spaceship. But when you start looking at the the bullet points, Uh you can't help but think. This could be a spaceship. This could be it.
1: This is what, you know, I kept feeling is like, we're responsible science communicators. It's not aliens, but it is kind of (laughs) weird. Okay, so we will, we'll talk about that more later. We should discuss what the characteristics of Oumuamua are. So before the discovery of Oumuamua, Astronomers knew about approximately 750,000 asteroids and comets in our solar system. And as far as we can tell, every single one of those objects originated here in the local solar system. This is the only object from anywhere else that we know about that we've ever seen locally. So it provides us with this tremendous opportunity to learn about the geology of other star systems and what's out there in terms of interstellar objects. This is the first one we've ever been able to see up close.
0: Yeah, if it's not a and it's probably not a a mess, a literal messenger from another uh, star system, it is figuratively a messenger from another star sh- uh, system. It is information yeah. from another star system,
1: bringing us a, a very brief opportunity to catch a glimpse of, mm-hmm. of what research potential is out there. So the scientists who discovered it and analyzed it, uh, they published their findings in Nature in November. It was a paper called, quote, A Brief Visit from a Red and Extremely Elongated Interstellar Asteroid. And the research was led by Dr. Karen Meech, an astronomer at the University of Hawaii. So uh, let's discuss some of the facts we've learned so far about Oumuamua. First, the size. The object is very small. The authors of the Nature paper determined it has an average radius of just over 100 meters. But So you're thinking radius 100 meters, okay, maybe it's a 200 meter wide sphere. But the shape of the thing is not a sphere. The shape is one of the weirdest things about it. You might wonder how do you figure out the shape of something that's so small and so far away and traveling through space at lightning speed? Like shouldn't it just be a blurry streak in the sky? That is true. That is sort of what it is. If you see the direct images we've been able to capture of it, it's just kind of a streak on a screen. Mm-hmm. But you can start to analyze what the shape of this object is like by looking at something called light curve charts. Now, a light curve model is a graph that shows the intensity of light measured coming from an object over time. And by analyzing patterns of reflected light uh, o- over time, scientists can start to figure out the shape and the and the rotation of an object like this. And what they discovered about this object, about Oumuamua, is that it appears to have a roughly 10 to 1 Length to width and depth ratio. So imagine a roughly cylindrical or tube shaped object, 10 times longer than it is wide. According to a NASA write up I found, it could be maybe about a quarter of a mile long, so that's up to about 400 meters, Mm -hmm. and if so, that would mean it's only about 40 meters wide.
0: So we have a long, slender space cigar, reddish yeah. in color.
1: This this needle from another star. Mm-hmm. We should point out that this is not a normal shape for space objects. We don't know. Other asteroids are not like this.
0: Yeah. You, when you see the images that have been uh, put out there of, of, of this particular object, uh, the first thing that, that enters your mind is this is not something you see in uh, in in typical illustrations of the cosmos. I mean, it looks more like something you would see in a science fiction film.
1: Yeah, exactly. So analysis reveals also, in terms of its rotation, that it's what's known as tumbling. This means it's rotating not around a principal axis, but just sort of spinning crazily around an irregular axis once every 7.3 hours. Now, by looking at the spectrum of light coming off of the thing, they've been able to determine that this thing is going to have a deep red coloration on its surface. And this is similar to some objects in our solar system that have seen heavy bombardment by cosmic rays. Looking at its trajectory, I guess we should ask... Where's it going? It's already on its way back out of the solar system, heading out from the sun uh, about at an angle of 20 degrees up off the orbital plane. So it's mm-hmm. going away from the sun and then up at an angle off of the, the, the orbital disk of all the planets. And this puts it on a heading for the Pegasus constellation. It passed the orbit of Mars at the beginning of November, and it's going to pass the orbit of Jupiter by May of 2018 and then Saturn by early 2019. So once again, it's booking. And this does present kind of a problem because, like, what if we wanted to – send a space mission out to meet it you know mm-hmm. send a, send a probe to go land on this thing that's going to be a real tough order you'd have to put together some kind of propulsion system capable of achieving speeds unlike anything we've ever
0: done before you would need a, a real crack team of yeah. uh, of scientists and explorers uh, uh, to uh, to tackle this kind of problem yeah
1: it would be really hard to catch this mm-hmm. thing uh so we, so it's heading out towards pegasus and it's going really fast the other side of that question is, where did it come from? Scientists currently think that it's been flying through interstellar space for probably hundreds of millions of years before it entered our solar system. Uh, and on its approach trajectory, it seems like it was coming from roughly the direction of the large star Vega in the constellation Lyra. But this doesn't mean it came from the Vega system because this is one of the most uh, disorienting things about space. you got to remember that, our view of the night sky is moving. Mm-hmm. So from our perspective, something that came from Vega, say a few hundred thousand years ago, if if it would have been a hundred, few hundred thousand years ago, where Vega is now, Vega wasn't there at
0: the time. So wait, are you saying that the age of the object would be in the hundred million year range or the hundred thousand year range? Well, we don't know for sure, but I've seen it speculated that it
1: it has been drifting. It has existed and been drifting for maybe hundreds of millions of years. But that about 300,000 years ago, say, it would have been about where Vega is. Okay, gotcha. But about where Vega is now, about not where Vega was then. So ultimately, we don't really know its origin yet. But I just saw there is a paper out. Uh, that's on on pre-publication servers right now. So it's on like archive.org. a paper by Simon Vart at all that discusses three theories about where this object came from. Mm-hmm. So one of the theories is that it's actually a Kuiper belt object. So something local. But if, if you're, you might be wondering, okay, if it's local, why would it have this hyperbolic trajectory? And the idea there is that it would have had to have been accelerated to a hyperbolic velocity by some kind of large object. It got a gravity assist from like a dark hidden planet or something somewhere okay. out there that made this thing go really fast, fast enough to escape the solar
0: system. So some sort of s- local space collision that that uh, beamed it in.
1: Not necessarily collision like mm-hmm. the, if there if there's a dark hidden massive planet oh, just somewhere kind of like out there it could there. have been just a gravity-based yeah. boost. So it gets a gravity assist from mm-hmm. this unknown object somewhere out there in the Oort cloud or something like that. And through that gravity assist it gets enough momentum it gets enough uh, velocity that it can escape the solar system. Okay, They don't rate that as very likely. It okay. looks very much like it actually did come from another star system. Uh, they look at the theory that it originated from a nearby star called TYC 4742-1027-1. Oh yeah,
0: the yogurt system, I believe.
1: <laughs> they also rate this as very unlikely. So the most likely option is this. When a young star forms a protoplanetary disk, The matter in this disk gradually coalesces into planets and other smaller objects. And this is how our solar system came to be about four and a half to five billion years ago. This is how other stars came to be as well. But then things like other stars in a star cluster can disturb these disks and cause matter to come out of orbit. Or gravitational resonances between young planets can fling stuff out of orbit with great velocity. So mathematical models show that these disks frequently eject masses of rock and ice out from the systems as they're forming and send them flying into interstellar space. And that there are probably lots of lonely little asteroids like this Floating out in the void between star systems. And the authors think that's probably what this rock is. Unless it's something else entirely. Ah, yes. And we'll get to those possibilities when we
0: come back from a break. All right, we're back. And we're going to discuss another possibility here and i and i and i know everyone already can guess what it is
1: now of course we know by this point if anybody discovers any kind of anomalous phenomenon whatsoever in space the daily mail is going to run an article saying it's aliens (laughs) it's seriously it's aliens also check out these royal family beach bods Mm -hmm. but it's aliens um and you know lots of publications like to do this that it's aliens is always going to get you clicks uh and then or is it aliens you know, just just put a question yeah, out there, he- heavily implying it's aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you've got on the other side, all of the actual space and science journalists who get really annoyed by this, like they're they're jaded from having to fill their careers by writing hundreds of It's Not Aliens articles over right. and over. And they'll immediately get angry and say, it's not aliens. Now, of course, the latter camp is always right so far. But let's say we reserve judgment and try to sort of marry the responsible skepticism of the scientists and the science journalists with the hopefulness and the open-mindedness of maybe not the It's Aliens community, but at least of SETI researchers. So it's time to ask this object.
0: Is it aliens? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we can't help but think about this for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, science fiction has been preparing us for mysterious alien vessels to just show up for some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they could be curious visitors, uh, advanced scouts of an invasion fleet, or simply a derelict ship bearing extraterrestrial dead. Oh, yeah. But it, it, it is such a common plot point in our science fiction. It's even if we even knowing that that is fiction, that these are uh, imagined scenarios, we can't help but look for it. Uh, when an, when an example like this comes around.
1: I mean, it's the one thing about space that is sure to get everybody's attention. You've got people who are into space and they find space beautiful and interesting mm-hmm. f- on its own characteristics in the same way that geology might be interesting. You know, th- there's mystery out there even if there's not life. But generally, everybody is gonna get excited if you think there might be life out there.
0: And, and that comes back around just to the fact that, that life elsewhere in the universe is an open question. Like, th- yeah. there are you're going to find hardliners on both sides that say yes there's definitely not only extraterrestrial life but intelligent life and also I saw it yesterday uh or you're going to you're going to find people who are taking the hard line of there's there's probably nothing we have no evidence uh, to support the idea that there is and there probably is not mm-hmm. but it is an unanswered question uh we ultimately cannot definitively say there are aliens or there are no aliens right at least in the broader sense but when we have a situation like this, well, then we can zero zero in on it a little bit, right? We can say, is this aliens? Right. And, and that's a very different question. That's a very different question, yes. Uh, and also uh, a question – the answer to that question is not going to answer the larger question, obviously, either.
1: Well, well, well one answer would. If yes. this is aliens, there definitely are aliens. But if it's not aliens – Still might be aliens, that's true. That's there true. still
0: might be aliens out there. see this is just this just shows just how ready I am for it to not be aliens <laughs> uh, because I do want to just continue to drive that home. This is almost certainly not aliens, right, but it never hurts to look, <laughs> okay, so what are some of the the obvious problems here? um first, there's the problem with anybody showing up, period, yep. So astrophysicist uh, Michael H. Hart he wrote a he wrote about the matter in a book uh titled uh, Interstellar Migration in the Human Experience. This is a collection of essays and he he uh, wrote one of them here. Mm-hmm. And he he makes a number of points. Mostly he's talking about the possible existence of interstellar empires. Yeah. Uh in, both in the human sense, could we build one, and then in the sense are they out there? Yeah. Because we can't help but think about that kind of, like, colonial ex- expansion.
1: Right. So he's going to be talking about the likelihood of, like, the physical arrival of alien uh, objects, of
0: technology
1: or beings.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he points out that, first of all, we have to remember that space is huge. Uh-huh. uh While technology has drastically reduced terrestrial travel to, uh, you know, a matter of hours – Uh, Quote, there is no reasonable hope that future technology will ever succeed in reducing interstellar travel time to months. We're simply contained in uh, to to this uh, to this realm via the confines of special relativity. Yeah. Bearing some unforeseen breakthrough. We cannot beat a beam of light in a drag race.
1: You see throughout the Star Wars movies. That there is a jump to light speed mm-hmm. and then it'll get you there pretty fast. The sad truth is we can't jump to light speed, but even if we could, it wouldn't be fast enough. Yeah. So y- y- you've you got mass. You're not going to be going light speed anytime soon, but it doesn't matter because even if you could go light speed or 99% of light speed, it's still going to take you forever to get between stars.
0: There's just so much space. That's right. Hart, uh, he says he predicts star to star travel would likely work out to at least a 50 year journey. Yeah. And that's that's a, you know, a reasonable distance of a star. We're not talking about going to a far flung uh, star. And he says, uh, given the time frame, given the distance, given the distance involved in the limits of travel, he figures it would take two million years of like determined uh, colonization for. A civilization to colonize the galaxy. Uh, now, I, this is one of those areas where uh, I don't even know if that's a low or or a high estimate. Well, I mean, would the things colonizing the galaxy by the
1: end of that still be humans?
0: Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, ultimately, it could be just machines, right, that have been created by organic life, and become the the, the species of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he points out that this would also be nothing like a human empire. It would consist of splintered civilizations to the tune of a few hundred billion to match, match the number of stars. Mm-hmm. Again, just the, the the distance would would play such a role in in the extent to which you could maintain order across any kind of a a large organization. So I I assume in this model he is
1: assuming some significantly faster travel than we have today but also not like light speed.
0: Yeah, he's saying that that we're still going to even with advanced technology we're going to come up against hard limits. There there are speed limits in place. And they prevent some of the models of interstellar civilization that we have dreamed up in the past.
1: One of the great questions that most sci-fi fails to address about how to get quickly between stars is the question of deceleration. Yes. Nobody ever thinks about how you need to stop when you get to a place. Mm -hmm. And if you're going at like, I don't know, 50 percent of light speed or something and you just hit the brakes and decide to suddenly stop. You, you are maybe atoms still, but you're not a human. Uh, I mean, th- th- that doesn't work well. So you'd essentially have to accelerate halfway and decelerate halfway.
0: Yeah. And that's something you, you definitely encounter, well, A, in more realistic science fiction, harder science fiction, but also in, in proposals for how we might, uh, uh go on longer, uh, uh space flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would have to spend half the time ramping up and half the time ramping down. If you don't want to liquefy. Right. You throw on the brakes too hard, you're going to to liquefy. Now, the inherent uh, part of all this is that aliens would be bound by the same limits, though perhaps they're not limited in other ways that humans would be. Uh, They could, of course, be machines. They could uh, have extremely long lifespans. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say that I think...
1: If we ever were to detect, uh, make alien contact in our solar system, I think it's unlikely. But I think it's far more likely that we would come across alien technology Mm -hmm. than aliens themselves as beings. I I could see more likely the scenario where we receive an uncrewed probe.
0: Right. I mean, especially if we're, we're basing it. On how we have we are behaving in mm-hmm. our exploration of space. It seems more likely yeah, that a machine would show up or yeah, their or, Voyager arrives. Yeah, their Voyager arrives. And it's not even a not even representative of their current level of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to what extent you can talk about current and uh, the current uh, to state of technology and the now when you're dealing with these vast distances. Yeah. Um, so maybe
1: we should go on that model. Like if it is aliens, maybe it's not physically, biologically aliens. Maybe it's alien technology.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, again, he says he thinks it would take two million years for uh, a civilization to really expand and, and, and reach this uh, power, uh, this level of galactic power. Uh, and two million years is certainly a drop in the bucket compared uh, to the Milky Way galaxy's 10 billion year history. Uh but it also means that other emergent life forms and other emergent civilizations would have the same odds. And nothing has seemingly expanded throughout the Milky Way galaxy in the previous two million year uh, period of time. Yeah. So Hart says, quote, we might reasonably infer that we are the first colonizing civilization in our galaxy. And for the moment, probably the only species with an advanced technology. If this is so, it will be our descendants who are likely to colonize and populate the entire galaxy. All right. So all of this just tackles the question, are there aliens? But again, we're dealing with a much more specific situation. We're asking, is this aliens? Right.
1: Is, is this thing, this elongated object, some alien spaceship or piece of alien technology?
0: Yeah. Is it an artificial object, be it a ship, be it a, you know, a, like a monolith with carvings inside it or, or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Be, is it something that was sent here uh, deliberately or accidentally?
1: Well, I mean, I guess we should instead back up to say the quest to ask the question, is there any good reason to think it might be aliens other than the fact that it's an
0: interstellar anomalous phenomenon? Alright, well, Lee Billings, uh, the science writer, to, uh, discuss this a little bit in a Scientific American article mm-hmm. that came out in the, in the last few weeks, because everything has pretty much come out in the last few weeks, and it's still coming out right. uh, regarding this story. So if it does turn out to be aliens, this episode's a total bust. We are in the odd position of rooting against aliens with this scenario, simply because it means we'd have to re-record the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, so what does Billings say about reasons oh, yes. mi- people think it might actually be aliens? Well, he points to the, to the, quote, collision minimizing form favored in many designs for theoretical interstellar probes. Okay, so
1: the elongated form because we don't usually see that in naturally formed space objects mm-hmm. and because it mirrors a kind of spaceship design form that you would have if you wanted to minimize the chance of running into something in space. Exactly. You you might start to think, okay, maybe that's sort
0: of a tick in the column of could be artificial. Exactly. It's It's shaped like we might shape a a ship or a probe for a similar purpose. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, it's pretty solid as we discussed, possibly metal, making it perfect for surviving a long journey between stars. Mm -hmm. And additionally, we don't have much in the way of satisfactory theories about how an elongated object like this would have formed or survived ejection from another solar system.
1: Yeah, that is a good question.
0: Now, on the other hand, he also points out that okay, it, it boasts an impressive spin rate, and I imagine some of you were thinking, "Oh, it's rotating; it's got artificial Whoa, gravity or yeah. something." But he said he argues that it's it's not really enough to produce meaningful artificial gravity. Yeah, because I think they said that it it rotates every
1: what seven point three hours or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, that's not super fast, and it's not super huge. And generating artificial gravity either requires your
0: your environment to be very large or to spin pretty fast right so there's nothing really we can significantly latch onto with that additionally there's there's no sign of propulsion here it's following an orbit shaped by the gravitational force of the sun that's not to say it can't be a ship Mm -hmm. uh, but that makes it more of a sailboat than a speedboat yeah okay and also speaking of speed experts uh, apparently think that it's actually moving a bit slow for a probe uh, the reasoning here is that you'd likely want to be moving faster to cover more ground and that uh – but, of course, that also raises a lot of questions about the presumed alien sense of time.
1: Right. So you'd think if there are aliens, say, this is like a Voyager or some, mm-hmm. some kind of probe to send the aliens information about our solar system, you'd think they'd want the probes to be going really fast to other right. star systems to get the information back as soon as possible because the people who made it might want something recognizable as their own children or grandchildren or something like that to be able to get the information. Right. And if it's going to take Hundreds of thousands of years to travel between star systems. Like, what's the point?
0: Unless it's just a message in a bottle, and and it's it's not about hearing back from it. It's not about their lifespan. But again, I'm I'm you can you can make all sorts of different interpretations of it and sci-fi it up in just the right way that it makes sense. So I guess some people would say then that there might be a few kind of interesting
1: little reasons to think, oh, maybe this could be artificial, but. I think a lot of the skeptics are going to be
0: saying, look, it's not aliens. Why would you waste your time bothering with this? Well, it, p- part of it comes down to the fact that we can't yet say definitively that it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, like This is an open question. We're still trying to figure out what this thing is. And uh, it's not we haven't completely ruled it out. It's very unlikely, mm-hmm. but we haven't completely ruled out the possibility that it is an artificial object.
1: Is it one of those scenarios where the question is just so interesting that even if you're 99.999% sure that the answer is no, you got to ask anyway, just because it feels so titillating?
0: Well, and we also have to ask because there are some steps that we can take to further investigate the possibility. So it's not just one of those things where it could be aliens. So let's keep the dream alive. It's, It's more like it could be aliens. Let's take the next logical steps to test that hypothesis out. Right. We can we can check it out. So, for instance, Avi Loeb, an astrophysicist and uh, breakthrough advisor, that's the Breakthrough Listen initiative, which we'll get into a little more in a minute here. Okay. Um, and he's also an advisor at Harvard University, pointed out the following to Scientific American. Quote, perhaps the aliens have a mothership that travels fast and releases baby spacecraft that freely fall into planetary... System on a reconnaissance mission. In such a case, we might be able to intercept a communication signal between the different spacecraft. Oh, I like that.
1: I mean, it makes me think of, uh, like, the scene in The Empire Strikes Back where the ship's going through and launching the Imperial probe droids off mm-hmm. in all these directions.
0: Exactly. Same sort of scenario. And, indeed, just because the thing's not trying to communicate with us, it could have some sort of communication that it has to make uh, back to the mothership.
1: Well, in that case, let's uh, put some radio telescopes on it. And I bet people are already
0: doing that. Exactly. I mean, because that's that's what uh, the folks at SETI have been thinking, mm-hmm. uh, the search for astra- extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, They think that it could be emitting or at least leaking radio waves. However, uh, initial snooping via SETI Institute's Allen Telescope Array turned up nothing. Mm -hmm. On Wednesday, December 13th, 2017, the Breakthrough Listen Project aimed at the West Virginia-based 100-meter Green Bank Telescope at Oumuamua for 10 hours of of observations in a wide range of radio frequencies. So was it aliens? Uh, No. No, So they listened from 3.45 p.m. to 9.45 p.m. Eastern Time. Mm -hmm. They scanned across four radio brands spanning billions of individual channels across the 1 to 12 gigahertz range. Mm -hmm. Over the course of a two-hour observation of the object itself, they collected 90, Uh, terabytes of data raw data Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're searching that data for signs of artificial uh, signals but despite some heavy computing power this is still going to take a little while to carry out right so as of this recording there is currently no evidence of any narrow bandwidth signals in the data that would suggest artificial nature to this
1: object so whatever it is it does not appear to be communicating via radio waves with anything else
0: Yet, unless something is happening right now (laughs) that that is changing all of that, in which case we will have to revisit putting out the episode to begin with. But we're we're making a safe bet here. Yeah. Now here's a here's another interesting point on the topic of rarity made by Breakthrough Listen's lead scientist Andrew Simeon that underlines humanity's sort of babe in the woods understanding of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. He says this thing cannot be a rarity. Uh, What's that? Well the The idea is, if it were, uh, if, if it were rare, we wouldn't be seeing it at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, which is an interesting argument, if you, if you think about it. The idea here is that, uh, it can't be a natural object that just happens to fall in our laps. If there's one of these out there, there have to be more. Right. And the idea is that we just haven't reached the point where are we're able to. Uh, to see them. We just, we're, we're not able to detect them yet. We don't have the technology. And as that technology comes online, we realize, oh yeah, there are space cigars everywhere. Uh, this was just the first time that we saw one.
1: Yeah. So I think that is uh, pretty much in line with what a lot of these astronomers are thinking. Yeah. Like, there are probably a lot more objects like this coming through the solar system
0: all the time. This is just the first time we caught one. It's kind of like the way I was thinking of it is if, say somebody does not know anything about Bollywood films, okay but they can name one Bollywood film. okay. Chances are that one Bollywood film they can name is a major title. It's like you know one of the the pillars of Bollywood, right? Like what are the chances that the one film they can name is some super uh, rare uh, uh, entry? uh you could use that with anything in pop culture i yeah. mean chances
1: are if you can only think of one example of a type of thing in pop culture it's one of the most widely replicated and talked about examples of that genre or category
0: exactly and so th- that's basically the scenario that's th- that is pro- probably taking place with this object that if if we're seeing it it cannot be rare Unless, of course, it's an alien ship, <laughs> and that kind of changes everything. I mean, that is very characteristic
1: of someone who thinks statistically about their experience of reality. and that is a mindset that i I don't often go to myself, but I can respect.
0: yeah, now it, it makes me question and say, well, well, isn't it also true that if this is if this does turn out to be an alien spaceship, then alien spaceships are also common, and maybe this is just the first time we're seeing one of these. I think that would be implied by that probabilistic yeah. argument
1: I mean it's all based on the the assumption you should make that your your life is not special and your experience is not unique
0: yeah I mean that's the the anthropic principle uh, right. in a nutshell the idea that we cannot we cannot look at the cosmos with uh with the notion that the human perspective is privileged or that earth is privileged in any way that you know defies just mere statistics. At the same time, you are all individually very special. I mean really, you have to feel special right to to think about it. just think of the the, the fact that this story is happening right now mm-hmm. that that the the open question is there is there intelligent life el- elsewhere in the universe uh, that we're this close to to potentially getting a yes answer, but probably not. <laughs> Well, I want to renew
1: what I said earlier, which is that I think this object and the story of its discovery is fascinating, even if it's not aliens, which it's almost definitely not.
0: Yeah, but it, but it's kind of like a, an unsolved murder. Like mm. suddenly there's a suspect. The suspect is almost certainly not the perpetrator. But the mere fact that there's a, sub, uh, that there's a suspect in the case is, is pretty phenomenal. Even if they're going to you know walk the street in just uh, you know a few hours because th- their alibi checks out. To be clear, this space object has not killed anyone. It's true, not yet. Now, <laughs> some of you are probably wondering: well, what what's going to happen then? Uh, it, uh, assuming that uh, that looking at this object uh, data was to present itself mm-hmm. that that suggested some sort of an intelligence, okay, and at least an intelligent design to the thing, uh, what would go down? Well, uh Simeon provides a sort of uh, step-by-step breakdown of how this would take place. Okay. So first of all, the signal would be detected or the signal would be decoded, like we would find uh data in the the in the uh, the radio waves that tipped us off. Okay. All right. So the next step would be to uh immediately uh, reobserve to confirm that signal.
1: Okay, you want to make sure that it wasn't a fluke in the recording or Right. Something.
0: Nobody wants to be the the uh the scientist to immediately go on cable news and say, "We did it. We made contact with the aliens." And uh we oh, we didn't actually check it though. Oops, it was actually a TV satellite. Right. Or <laughs> All right. So after this, if they've once they confirm the signal, next they will reach out to pre-selected astronomers around the world uh, to target the object with other radio telescopes. Uh-huh. And I think his his exact words were, "We have a we uh, have a Rolodex just for this." So they have all the contacts ready to go. And then if that shakes out. Then they're gonna go public with what's happening. So there's not gonna be this government conspiracy. Let's hide the nature of aliens from the the people because they'll all freak out, uh, and start buying bread and beer. No. Never really made a lot of sense to me. Well, I mean, it would, it would disrupt things. It would at least disrupt the news cycle for a little bit, you know? Uh, it would, I mean, no, it would change everything. Yeah. If, if suddenly we had proof that there was alien life, it would, I don't know that it would cause a collapse of civilization, but, I don't think so. Uh, this would be a, this would be a good uh, topic to discuss, though. Just sort of like, like the preparations for, like the cultural preparations for the identification of extraterrestrial life.
1: I think it would be one of the most – I agree with that. I think it would be one of the most interesting discoveries in the history of humankind. But I don't know if it would actually disrupt life all that much unless they were like here and ready to wage war on us or something.
0: Well, but I, that would be the next question. Like why is it here? What is it doing? What are its intentions, right? And that can lead to a certain amount of paranoia. I guess so. Uh
1: But I don't know. I think if we just discovered a, a, a not overtly threatening uh, alien, I think people would – basically be really interested,
0: but then the next day they need to go get the groceries. I think one of my big concerns here, though, is is in some sort of a first contact scenario, like how does communication go with this entity? Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, certainly we, uh, I think we've touched on this on the podcast before about the different individuals and organizations sort of uh, that have been proposed as a first contact team or or council, but... Right. You can certainly imagine scenarios where, say, leaders (laughs) that exist
1: might want to be the first person to talk to the aliens, and maybe that would not be great.
0: Like if they realize that Twitter is our primary mode of communication, and so the spaceship were to join Twitter, like it were to to acquire the uh, Oumuamua Twitter handle, and then anybody could tweet at it. Just think of the chaos. Yeah. And it's just an egg. (laughs) <laughs> it's just an interstellar egg. It probably would. They wouldn't, you know, they, they, they might not
1: uh, even have sight. It tries to figure out hashtags and fails. <laughs> it just keeps hashtagging normal words.
0: <laughs> or it doesn't actually say anything. It just likes tweets. <laughs> And then you have to wonder it doesn't say if its likes are an endorsement of the idea or not, uh, and so w- it basically means that we have just all the great minds of the world are just poring over Twitter to try and figure out what its uh, its ideology is based on
1: its likes, and its ideology is it only likes the tweets of that guy who played the kid on Star Trek the Next Generation. Oh will
0: Wheaton, it? yeah, yeah well that that would I think that would be an okay scenario, yeah. and then then will has to step up. And be the ambassador for Earth. I was trying to think who else are those good, like, well-liked
1: social media power users.
0: Uh, well, most of them are really – I mean, he's even divisive depending on where you, you stand, right? I can't think of a single, like, universally liked Twitter uh individual because Twitter, by its very nature, is about hating and loving in equal measures, right? We've gone way off topic here. Yeah. But, uh, hey, but we've given everybody some food for thought here. Uh, I, this is a fascinating, ongoing, uh, story. And again, we're really betting that it's not alien life here, but it's still amazing to dream about. Yeah, the first messenger from another star. All right. Hey, in the meantime, while we're waiting for answers uh, from our visitor here, uh, be sure to hack out, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts, videos, and links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and so forth. Big thanks to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison.
1: Hey, and if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can do that via email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. stuffworks.com.